You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. Uh, This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Dana Susskind, who is a professor at the University of Chicago, also a surgeon, right? cochlear implant surgeon, to be exact, and also the author of a couple books. Most recently, this book, Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise, which builds on your previous book, 30 Million Words, Building a Child's Brain. Now, the 30 Million Words book, I think, created quite a stir. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who wasn't talking about that book right at the time when it came out. But I think this book is much broader in its ambition because it speaks to parenting. It speaks to our educational system. It speaks to daycare or childcare system. It also talks about the workplace, right? And the fundamental message is how can we take parenting and childcare from the periphery of our societal concerns and move it in towards the center? I mean, Every single human being on the planet was at one point a child <laughs> needed to be kind of cared for. And in the book, you emphasize the, the disproportionate impact of early life history and early life experience. And, you know, as an economist, we're always talking about how an ounce of prevention can lead, can avoid a pound of cure, so to speak. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're, we're thinking in terms of investments and returns and ROI and so forth. And I think the message of your book is that we as a society have fundamentally underestimated the return on investment to early childcare. Now, we do have at the same time this notion that among a lot of parents, they need to be kind of intensive parents and they need to be very, you know, and there's a lot of people complaining about kind of helicopter parenting and so forth. So one of the paradoxes I think we have to discuss is, you know, why is it that on the individual level, everybody understands the need for very active, kind of aggressive parenting and childcare, but as a society, we, we, we don't seem to think it's, it's all that important, right? <laughs> you know, how, yeah. how do we, how do we yeah. reconcile those things? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's it's a pleasure. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to sort of first speak to one of the first things you said, that the second book has a much broader ambition. I, I would actually sort of argue that this fir- the second book, uh, Parent Nation, is a natural extension of my first book. My first book really looked at the individual level, what it is that children need for healthy brain development. and at the end of the day, it's not rocket science, right? It's nurturing serve and return, la- rich language interactions and protection from toxic stress in the first three years of life, which allow children to have healthy brain development. And it's not crazy intensive parenting either. I mean, it's really just that sort of nurturing interaction. But what Parent Nation does is that it answers the question that you you just posed, you know, if we understand all of this to be true, what children need for healthy brain development is, you know, nurturing interaction. What does a society look like that actually puts 
the healthy brain development of children at the center. And at the end of the day, what it requires is that the healthy development of children requires the support of parents um, and is completely dependent on the support of parents and caregivers towards that end. So in some ways, it's they, they're very connected. The problem is, is that we know so much at the individual level, but for some reason at a societal level, we've I don't want to say disregarded it, but we're almost built in diametric opposition to it, in, at least in this country. At the center is this notion of, of neuroplasticity and the idea that parents and caregivers are brain architects. I, I was actually thinking mm-hmm. like, you know, brain weavers, right? In a way they're kind of weaving <laughs> and, and architecting, you know, this brain capacity. And, and I like the metaphor where you said that the hardware, maybe that's kind of the thing that you're, you're, you're born with is only one piece of what leads to success and healthy growth. But really, it's kind of the operating system. And it's the operating system which is implanted. And this is really kind of the brain function. So a lot of us, I think, are inclined to think that, you know, genetics are very, very important. And of course they are. But so much more is, is due to, you know, what happens after birth. I mean, you didn't talk about kind of the prenatal experience, but I think a lot of what you're talking about in terms of stress, you know, flows back yeah. to the prenatal experience, right? Yeah. No, a- absolutely. I mean, I think that what people don't always think about is those first three years really allow whatever your genetic promise is to be fully to fully flourish. Of course, genetics is a big part of who we are, but it's not just you know, nature, nurture allows nature to flourish. And I don't think that we often think that so many children, especially in this country, aren't allowed the promise of their promise, if you will. And without those first three years of life where the full capacity of brain development occurs, I mean, which is, which allows all thinking and learning to, to come after. So it's not nature or nurture, it's both. A lot of the emphasis in 30 million words makes you think that the most important skills that need to be fostered in this early life experience are reading and and writing and arithmetic and so forth. But you emphasize that there are a whole bunch of other things that that go into this brain function, right? Like literary skills and kind of self-control and the ability to focus and and the ability to plan and, and so forth. If these capacities are laid down so early, then Presumably, remediation later, if they're not laid down, it's going to be very, very difficult, right? And I think we see, you, you emphasize that we see the impact of the variation in early life experiences flow through to the teenage years, flow through to adulthood, you know, flow through the, the entire life experience. You emphasize that it's important for parents to understand that they are in this role, in this function. And you emphasize that if they are educated about this, they will do kind of a, a better job, but do they need to have kind of explicit understanding? Do they need to, they need to understand like, you know, neuroscience and brain function or, or can they just sort of understand, Hey, here are some things you can do that are good. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, there was a lot in, in, in that question, but just to, to zoom out, I mean, as you know, it's not just sort of cognitive skills that are important for children's school readiness and school, you know, school success, you know, reading, writing, vocabulary development. That's one part of it. The other part is really executive function and the socio-emotional development. Mm-hmm. As you as you mentioned, self-regulation, working memory, being able to sit down, you know, sit still and listen to a teacher. That, so these two sort of 
major skill formation that allow children to be successful in school are really laid down in the early years through this rich language environment and protection from toxic stress. And obviously parents are critical, parents and caregivers, you know, early childcare providers are critical in that skill formation. Do parents, you know, and caregivers need to understand the deep neuroscience? Probably not. Do they need, you know, some basic understanding of children's healthy development and what it takes to build that. I think that all parents deserve to understand the science. It shouldn't be pulled up into the ivory towers. We're doing, we're doing this learning not to keep it to ourselves, but so that all individuals can understand how powerful they are as brain architects of children. But even more important is, is the societal support so that they can put it into action. I often think, look, if I could wave a magic wand and every parent in this country understands the deep neuroscience of their children's healthy development versus having the societal supports that I lay out in this book that allow them that time and capacity, I would certainly do the latter because I think at the deepest levels of our DNA, we want, we will do anything for our children and nurturing interaction. A lot of it comes naturally. Would I like both? Absolutely. But uh, yes, I think parents deserve to understand the science and the support from society to put it into action. Yeah, now I've spoken to some other folks about child rearing and you know, they'll talk about the modern world, particularly the modern Western world as, as being unique in some ways because some of the, you know, when parents are trying to figure out how to become parents, they're much more reliant on reading books or you know, yeah. uh, trying to figure stuff out on their own as opposed to relying on the collective inherited wisdom of, of their communities. Are a lot of the techniques that you talk about, I mean, tune in, talk more, take turns and so forth. <laughs> are those things that existed really more frequent maybe prior to the westernization of parenting practices? Because I mean, a lot of what you're doing in the book, and we'll talk later about kind of policy interventions, you know, you're comparing kind of Denmark to the U.S. And, and I was kind of hoping you'd compare like the U.S. to hunter-gatherers <laughs> or you yeah. know, uh, peasants or, or other types of societies. Is, is there something about the way in which we in the West view parenting that, that is, you know, we've somehow forgotten some of this stuff? No, no I mean, I think, look, as you know, children don't come with instruction guides. And it is, it is a very stressful and difficult time. And especially in this country where there's this individualistic mentality that look, bringing a child into the world is all on you. And when things don't go well, it's all on you and there's no societal support. I think it's also sort of embedded into our psyche because we don't get any instruction to like you know, read every book that we can. It's really just one more manifestation how rearing children is sort of this individualistic endeavor without support. Um, no, I mean, have we forgotten, as you say, the tune in, talk more, take turns, you know, at the end of the day is a nurturing interaction that I think comes naturally to a lot of people. But if given that the space, the bandwidth, the societal support, the lack of stress would be there. You know, on the other hand, there's a lot of new science that we haven't known about, right? The fact that babies learn math are learning math from day one and having routines built 
cognitive development, you know, an executive function. I think those are new things. And, and I'll tell you some science, I mean, since you're an economist, we, you know, some of the research we've done is quite interesting, sort of digging into what parents know and believe about their children's development, because that is, it's not enough, but that's an important factor in how they sort of rear their children. And, you know, we, there's still a lot of common misconceptions out there, like, TV, educational TV in the first two years of life is good for children, which it's not. Or babies can't understand math. There are misconceptions that can be rectified because knowledge should be allowed for everyone. But no, I think that there's a natural aspect to our nurturing of our babies. You talked about sudden infant death syndrome, right? And how, you know, people were putting their babies on their stomachs and then we discovered that that was actually harmful. And so the new discovery that they should be on their backs, it took some time for that discovery to diffuse, right? So as we start learning these things, how quickly do these discoveries get diffused? I mean, do, <laughs> do, do the good ideas diffuse more quickly than the, the bad ideas, right? Because the whole idea that you should put your child on, on their stomach, right? I mean, that was not sort of conventional wisdom. That was sort of came out of Dr. Spock, right? Uh, in this, in yeah. the 60s, and that kind of spread. And it turned out that it was, you know, it was misguided. There's a whole literature on how, they, how quickly things diffuse out of the scientific literature. And actually, it takes a long time. I think yeah. the average is like 17 or 19 years. I can't remember. I, I think SIDS and the fact that we need to put them back to sleep spread much more rapidly. One, because parents were incredibly fearful of the idea. It's a relatively sort of concrete thing that parents can do, and because they really took a public health approach to addressing this issue and getting this information out to parents in a really robust way. I think the point of that story was the fact that, you know, some of our knowledge isn't necessarily, as you say, intuitive. It can be counterintuitive, but yet the most important job we have you know, one of the most important jobs, I think, is raising the next generation. I mean, parents and caregivers, as I say, are the guardians of our society's future, but we have no sort of systematic way to share information. It's laid on, you know, go read a thousand books or go to your influencers, which is all fine and good, but yet it's a really important thing that we could leverage the healthcare sector and the public health care sector for sharing this information with parents to inform how they raise their children. Right now, in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about socioeconomic inequality and the impact that it has on brain development. And, and I think, you know, it's well known that the folks who come from wealthy backgrounds are, are more likely to do well on SATs. They're more likely to do well in school. They're more likely to get admitted to better universities. And, you know, generally, I, th I think you say it's, it's better to be rich than to be gifted right? <laughs> at some level. Well, I, um, I, I didn't say that. Somebody else said that, but yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> Right. But, but you know, the, the, the empirical evidence seems to suggest that it's, it's a much more difficult challenge for you if you're born into poverty. So, could, you know, could you talk a little bit uh, about that, right? What are the differences? Part of it, I, I know that stress is, is a huge factor, and that alone can create problems, but also the difficulties that, that parents have in providing a nurturing environment for brain development as a result of yeah. low socioeconomic yeah. status. And before I dive into the last part of the question, you know, really framing it's children born into poverty 
have harder times getting into certain universities. I mean, obviously, it's not just the early childhood space that are providing the structural barriers to allowing equal opportunity for children that come even after their early childhood. So I'm not saying that making early childhood a, a, a time of greater opportunity and support for parents is going to rectify all those other <laughs> downstream barriers that are placed in the, in the way of, of children born into poverty or children of color. But with that being said, those first three years of life are critical for allowing children the promise of their promise. Because let's, let's just be clear that all children are are born with their own individual promise. But for so many, that promise is sort of ripped away because of the, the vacuum of supports for families, et cetera. And one of the most insidious impacts of poverty is on the developing child. And that was Joan Luby, who wrote an article actually, uh, who stated poverty's most insidious impact is on the developing brain. And the mechanisms of how it impacts the developing brain is through probably through two two sort of pathways uh, in general. One is through you know the impact of toxic stress. We know that being exposed to very stressful environments, whether it be you know living in communities with a lot of violence, homelessness, you know parents struggling with other issues, impacts the developing brain as well as decreases in sort of nurturing interaction, language input, whether it be because families, you know, have to work 10 jobs and don't have the time or bandwidth with their children. Or, you know, in my book, I told the story of, you know, one dad who was incarcerated for the first five years of his son's life on false charges and finally let go. So there are many mechanisms that provide that. But at the end of the day, the impact of, par of poverty on the developing brain seems to impact those two areas that are so important for school readiness, right? One is the language part of, you know, the vocabulary language part of the brain, and then the executive, the prefrontal cortex, amygdala, and hippocampus that are important for sort of the self-regulation aspects. So, you know, here we live in a society in, you know, in the U.S. where children under five are the poorest segment of our population, right? Unlike Many other countries, we have the highest density of poverty uh, in the most important time period. So, you, you know, we've certainly tried and we, you know, we can talk about the child credit and the positive impact that it had for the one year. But understanding poverty's impact on the developing brain has to be discussed in the context of the policies that allow it to happen. Well, what's interesting is historically, it's a bit unusual to have a society where the lower income people have more children than the upper income people or surviving children that is right so for most of human history right the you know the the, the children were probably disproportionately wealthier right and now we have children are disproportionately poorer so this this makes the problem probably one of greater magnitude relatively speaking than it has been historically right yeah you say that the citizens of our future, we are not just shortchanging them, which shortchanging ourselves as a mm -hmm. society. Well, you know, you talk in the book about how public education is something that's been in the United States for a really long time. So they, they understood even from the Puritan times that we needed to make sure that everybody, you know, had access to 
this education, but typically would start relatively late, right? I mean, I guess for somebody who does pediatric stuff, it seems relatively late, right? <laughs> I, I know I, st I started my schooling before I was three. So I went to a Montessori kindergarten and, and I was, but we were doing projects and doing all sorts of cool, fun stuff. <laughs> You know, and, and my mother was was not employed, but she still thought, OK, you know, I'm, I'm going to send you off to this place and, and, and do. I mean, she was employed as a caregiver, but she was not working for yeah. paid work outside of the household. But nevertheless, yeah. you know, sent me off to this place. But but that that would have been relatively early, I guess. So is this philosophy built on the notion that everything that happens before you go to school, we, we were pretty comfortable assuming that everything that happens before that time period the household is capable of doing a really good job. I mean, is that, is that the idea that no matter who you were as a parent, you're yeah. probably going to be able to do a pretty good job you know, up to that point? Yeah. The history of free of education in this country is fascinating. It actually starts back during the Puritan times, a guy named Comenius, who was actually the architect of what education looks like in this country and around the world, wrote a book called The Great Didactic, Across the Pond. And, you know, it really laid out the way education looks like today. And remember, they did education back then because of religious reasons. They felt that you needed to be able to read so that you could read the Bible and lead a, a good life. And it actually, you know, it reached viral for that period of time. And mm -hmm. it really is why we instituted education. But in his book, he really started, I think, around the age of seven over to the new country. And I always say it became... He actually said in the early years, children shouldn't be in school. And so, you know, in some ways, I wonder if that's how it all started. And, you know, here we built this great educational system and uh, things were going well. The rest of the world started catching on, but then realized that, you know, we needed, they needed to start earlier and earlier. And so in other countries, they have great early education systems. But for some reason in our country, for I think it sort of comes back to sort of this American individualism idea that, that education shouldn't start earlier. And so we've really never sort of caught up. But it is mm -hmm. quite fascinating. But I mean, is it possible that maybe back then it wasn't so bad, right? I mean, no, there are other trends. No. For instance, we have the breakdown of the extended family, right? So in, in those days, you would at least have some, maybe some grandparents or some aunts and uncles or some cousins kind of around that would make it easier. You know, there was less female participation in the workforce, right? I mean, yeah. some of the other trends oh, no, that no, are happening sure. kind of making it kind of more, making it really more difficult. Oh yeah. To, no, for, no, 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 no. Families. Absolutely. I mean, look, we've learned more and more about healthy brain development, but the mid last century, you know, when there are many fewer women in the, the workforce, um, there was someone home to provide the nurturing interaction, but with the shifts, you know, related to the economy and the fact that many women joined the workforce and now it takes more than one job by each parent, if it's a two-parent household, to, you know, in, even maintain, you know, a home, it's become much, much more stressful. And while, while women have joined the workforce, our, we've never sort of figured out how to build an early childhood system mm -hmm. to support the fact that people have children and someone needs to be helping nurture the children while, you know, parents are at work. So, so, so what about, I mean, daycare, right? So, so a lot, there are people obviously who are, who are 
critical of, of daycare, but isn't daycare just, it's another version of, of allo parenting. What makes for good daycare versus bad daycare? I think you, you, you say in the book that education is different from just parking people in a room and, and keeping an eye on them, making sure they don't hurt themselves. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> make for and, good just daycare. So, and just so you know, I'll have to, so the correct term is early child care and education. And I think that's an important term. I mean, I'm not into language, but, but the truth is, is that, you know, when you think of daycare, you think of glorified babysitting. And mm, this, that's yeah. the problem, is that that's often what people think about in those first three years of life. And it's just the opposite. If we think back and say, okay, 85% of the physical brain is being grown during this critical period of time. This is one of the most robust periods of brain growth. Those early care providers are just providing care. They're they're helping build the foundation for thinking and learning. And when you start thinking about them as early child care and education providers and realizing, look, this is part of the educational continuum and we need to support and not just remunerate them, but give them the sort of the credence of that, we would have a much better high quality system than we have today. Because right now we don't have really an early child care and education system. And so the brink of implosion continually, it seems. You mentioned that part of it has to do with the fact that this is not a very attractive profession for a lot of people. You know, it's not compensated well, it's very difficult and so forth. But why do you suppose it is? I mean, as a professor, I'm paid a lot more than someone who is doing early child care and education. And yet they're presumably having a bigger impact on their, on their students than I am. In the financial world, venture capitalists do quite well. And the people who are just kind of tending mature portfolios, maybe they do okay, but they're not doing as well as some of the venture capitalists. So, so aren't these early childcare providers kind of the, the venture capitalists of the, of the next generation, <laughs> right? So, you know, why, yeah. why aren't they getting rich off of it, so to speak? Yeah. Or why don't we train, compensate them in the way they should? I think because in some ways, as you say, you know, it looks like glorified babysitting, right? People don't really think about what's happening and what's happening when we don't provide high quality early child care and education. And the truth is, in this country, only 10% of early child care and education was of high quality, meaning 90% is of varying quality. And despite the fact that, you know, for most parents, it costs like a mortgage, you know, a second mortgage or mm-hmm. college tuition, we pay these childcare providers like less than dog walkers because we haven't disconnected those two issues. Why is it? I, I think it's because we think it's, we don't value it. We don't realize how important it is. And it feels like, and that's in some ways what the book is about. It's not just re- it's reframing the narratives around parents and child care providers that, you know, they should be seen as brain architects, the guardians of our country's future. Because until that time, we're going to continue to marginalize parents or sideline parents and not support early child care providers. So there's obviously this part of the story has to do with the fact that not a lot of people can afford to spend a lot of money on this. But but even the people who can they don't seem to. For a lot of parents, I think if, if it comes down to, I don't know, in, investing in, in more, I don't know, real estate or something, as opposed to in, investing in, in more childcare, they might choose the real estate. 
you, do you think that people just don't understand the the benefits that accrue or is it that they don't really appreciate that role? Do we as a society not kind of respect people who have the role of childcare professional and, and I include all pretty much all parents as childcare professionals, oh. right? Do we just not respect that as, as valuable work? Do we glorify other kinds of work, yeah. particularly paid work? What? Uh, at the expense <laughs> of- well, well, first, yeah, no, I mean, we can talk about, you know, the invisible labor for an entire hour. Although I would say that I think parents are paying a lot. I mean, they are paying a huge amount from all SESs. And, you know, as I mentioned, for so many, it's the cost of a second mortgage or, you know, state college tuition. But even, you know, in families with higher resource families, at least in my sort of what I'm seeing, it's they are investing a whole lot. But going to why don't we view it as important. I think, I think Elon Musk said something to the effect of people get compensated related to the complexity or the difficulty of the issue that they've, mm -hmm. that they're caring for. And, you know, anybody who's ever tried to try being an early care provider, I, mean, I think everyone should go give it a try and see, see how hard it is. And in some ways, the pandemic, I think, hopefully has allowed a lot of parents to, it has reminded a lot of parents that educators should probably be compensated more than they are. It, this is, in general, it's interesting. I think people who care for children in many different realms are compensated less. So even in medicine, if you're a cardiac surgeon who takes care of adults versus a cardiac surgeon who takes care of children, there's a huge difference in your pay, which is really interesting. Or, you know, even pediatric ENT, you know, pediatricians versus internal medicine doctors, there, there's a difference. We pay less for our kids. We, we, we say we care about them a whole lot, but we don't seem to compensate those who care for them that way. You talk about the role of pediatricians and how pediatricians can kind of help parents, right, with this brain architecting. Yeah. But pediatricians are, are expensive, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why they're not capable of spending an awful lot of time with their patients. You talk about kind of this artificial divide between kind of medicine and, and non-medicine. And here in the U.S., we spend an enormous amount on the kind of medical industry and the medical profession. Yeah. But we don't spend nearly as much outside of that profession with respect to, you know, the things that could impact child development. I mean, even like, for instance, in birth, right, we emphasize obstetricians and kind of doulas, you know, they're, they're kind of shunted to the side. Do, do we need to kind of have a more holistic or integrated view of what medicine is? Yeah. When I talk about leveraging the healthcare system and the power of the pediatric time period, the prenatal time period, it's not so much about putting more on the shoulders of pediatricians. As you mentioned, mm -hmm. pediatricians are already stretched beyond belief and they're incredibly important. But I think it's also really viewing it as in the team-based approach. So many of the stories that I shared in, in leveraging the healthcare sector was about how we can leverage the pediatric healthcare system as a part of the educational continuum, right? If we say that, you know, learning doesn't start on the first day of school, but on the first day of life, how do we reach and support parents and families? Uh, there is no school system, nor should, should there be. But pediatricians in the healthcare sector have multiple time periods where they meet with families, 
And we can use that as an opportunity to support families more holistically in the important role of parenting and making sure that they have stable, nurturing environments to provide for their children and for themselves. But if, if we were going to invest, say, an additional public dollar, the return on that investment would probably be higher at this point outside of the, the medical profession than inside the medical profession. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me just to, to clarify. So in a team-based approach, I mean, what's so important in medicine is, as you say, so much, it's called the social determinants of health. The fact is, is that most of what impacts our health, you know, isn't, doesn't happen within the clinic. It's, you know, your community. And the truth is, is that while you can meet and support families with, with, during their clinic visits, much of it is about connecting to resources outside of the healthcare system. Yeah. So if a family is dealing with homelessness or, or having mental health issues or other stressors, meet the families there, but connect them to resources, you know, in the community or outside the healthcare system. Better integration between kind Better. of the, what the healthcare system does, what public services can do, and, you know, all of the other things that could potentially help this, this new parent. Yeah. And really taking a preventative upstream approach, because as you mentioned, in our country, we spend a huge amount of money on our healthcare system and we get very little in return because we're always trying to fix issues. Right. And because we're, you know, fee for service as opposed to taking a preventative approach. And, you know, this the starting early and, you know, reaching out and having an integrated community based approach is really part and parcel to a preventative approach. Those early years, why it's important is not just healthy brain development. That's a critical factor in making sure children get off to the right first possible start. But it's also the fact that what happens in the early years is actually connected even to later on issues. It's not just educational outcomes, healthcare outcomes. We spend a huge amount on later health issues, right? Diabetes, hypertension, obesity, that can be connected to issues in early childhood. So by investing smarter and better in the early years, we are helping children now and helping, you know, our healthcare system later on down the road and those individuals. Now, I want to talk a bit about the workplace, right? Because, you know, it, it seems like, you know, the workplace and jobs and everything else that, you know, they were kind of designed for, for men when the workplace was primarily male, particularly in kind of office environments, right? And then as we started increasing the female participation rate, we, we didn't really change the nature of the jobs or the ch nature of the workplace. And we just said to women like, hey, you got to plug in here, <laughs> adapt to this environment, which meant that you can't really generally bring your kid to work right? Yeah. In most modern offices. I mean, certainly at universities, you know, you don't see people bringing their, their babies to class, yeah. right? You don't see professors bringing their, their babies into, into the office. I've never brought go, my child into at, the operating room. Your, didn't your mom bring you to? <laughs> my mom <laughs> brought me to, yes, my mom did. And she stuck me in a closet, but I never brought my children to the operating room. So, I mean, maybe the operating room might be a little gory <laughs> for them, right? But, but it, Apart from the operating room, I mean, it seems like we, we certainly could be doing more to, to help, right, integrate life and, and work. I mean, obviously, work from home is something that is becoming increasingly important and, and 
although some people say it's very, very difficult for them to work at home, it, it can also offer a, a lot of flexibility. When you look at hunter-gatherer societies, they're typically working with their kids around, right? The kids are there, they're there, and they can kind of, kind of multitask. How can companies, you, you describe a couple companies that have initiatives that make it easier for people to take, say, parental leave. But yeah. are there other ways that companies can kind of make it easier for people to be both parents and employees? Yeah, no, no. I mean, and the truth is there are multiple ways. I think the first step is exactly what you're not saying, understanding that employees are also parents and supporting them in both roles is actually good for the bottom line. And in terms of how to support parents, there are many different ways. In, in general, I think of them as flexibility, reliability, you know, help with childcare and just an acknowledgement that, you know, they are also parents sort of ripping down, not ripping down the ideal worker sort of view, but it's, I actually talk about something called secret parenting, a yeah. term that Emily Oster coined that often we feel that admitting that we're parents is in some ways, you know, showing that we're not ideal parents. And I think tearing down that and really sort of saying, look, they're also parents. And to be able to bring my full self to work, I need the flexibility so that I can also make sure that the child at home, you know, or at school is cared for, you know, things that you know, workplaces can do to support parents beyond that is, you know, obviously the importance of flexibility, pay family and medical leave. I tell the story of a, of a mom who, you know, had a, you know, well-paying job. She was a great worker, but because she had no paid family and medical leave, had to leave her job to care for her husband, you know, her sick husband who was hospitalized. And they ended up in a homeless shelter unnecessarily for two years. I mean, so whereas if she had had a little leave to be able to care for her husband, all these sort of, you know, uh, downstream ramification, you know, bad things wouldn't have happened. So I think, you know, leave, childcare, you know, flexibility, and just knowing that we're all parents or almost all, all, all taking care of someone um, is, is critical in that. And knowing it's good for the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming sort of a recruitment tactic to make the workplace more attractive and people are starting to pay attention to that. Yeah, I think that's a huge, a huge, wonderful issue because I think businesses can play an important role in pushing society forward on this issue because certainly policy and policymakers seem to be having a hard time sort of just mm -hmm. getting the bare minimum. Like the fact that we're the only country OECD country without paid family and medical leave sort of blows my mind. But the nice thing about, you know, corporate America is there's a pragmatism. You know, you want to recruit great talent and retain them. Of course, you're going to want to support individuals holistically. And uh, I'm hoping because they they are so receptive because they're also being impacted. I mean, it was, I think, Claudia Golden said that, you know, it was parent mothers with children from zero to five who were most leaving the workforce because of the lack of childcare and societal support. So I think that businesses can play a positive role. Now, I, I want to talk a bit about the, the pandemic, right, and the impact that it had. And you, you mentioned in the book, actually, that there is some evidence that, at least for some subset of children, they were able to spend more time with their parents. And this may have had a, 
uh, some somewhat of a positive impact. But in general, obviously, it was hugely stressful on, on kids. And for many kids, they were deprived of, you know, educational experiences that they would have benefited from. Is this irreversible? Are there going to be impacts that we're going to be feeling for, for decades to come that will arise from this kind of gap, this education gap? You know, I was writing this book right in the beginning, early early time period of the pandemic, when there was a little bit of glimmer that maybe there was going to be more time and interaction between with parents and children. And that was a little bit hopeful. Unfortunately, because of the stress and because of parents being pulled in sort of so many directions, you know, being forced to not just hold their job, but the parents, care therapists, you know, camp counselors for their children, it actually became a much more stressful experience. And mm-hmm. early studies coming out are very concerning, especially in the early years. Uh, out of NYU and Columbia, it's looking like children are having delayed milestones for those who were born during the pandemic. And they think it's often related not to parents having COVID, but rather through the stress mechanism that we talked about. So it's concerning. I, I never want to say anything is irreversible, but I have to tell you, we need to to get on it. None of this story is that it's ever too late. It just becomes harder and harder and requires greater investment. So I sure hope that societally we, we get on it or we will be paying for it. Children will be paying for it. Well, last question. Obviously, there's some policy things that are very important we need to take seriously and think about. And there's also some things that individual parents can do while they're waiting for, for, for policy changes. I mean, I do think the parents care an awful lot. And as you mentioned, there are these intensive parenting practices that people are engaged in. But what can parents do to make sure that they are in the business of architecting their child's brain correctly? Do, do they need to kind of become experts on, you know, neuroscience no. or, you know, what, what do they have to do? I'm actually going to answer it in a way that you will probably be surprised. And I actually want parents to give themselves grace. These last two years have been incredibly stressful and difficult. And the truth is, there are many ways to raise a child. There are many ways to parent a child successfully. There's one way to nurture a brain. That's nurturing talk and interaction. But the truth is, is that there is something called good enough parenting. And I can say that both as a mother of older children, that there are many times that you say, oh, I should have done it a different way. In the end, it's the larger picture that matters. Um, so give yourself grace and remember that it's, it shouldn't be all on you, right? Look to your family and your community for support and remember that you are raising the next generation and you deserve this both support from your community and from your society. And make sure that we adequately respect and praise people who are in the business of brain architecting for sure. And we think from a public policy perspective on how we can take seriously the return on investment that goes into kind of early childhood development. Dana, thanks so much for joining me. New book, Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise. Great talking with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.